0: Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan.
1: Hello, everyone. This week on Around the Coin is Brian Romley and myself, Mike Townsend. Uh, Faisal, our third amigo, is out in Africa right now on some wild adventure, researching payments and doing some really cool things out there, but he couldn't connect with us today. So Brian and I are going to carry on without him and do the best we can. Uh, We've got some exciting topics today. Uh, Brian? Good morning. Good morning.
2: We miss you, Faisal, on your safari adventure in Africa in payments. This is going to be an amazing time for you, so we Mm. can't wait to hear.
1: Yeah, every time I talk to Faisal, he's in another part of the world all of which I've I've never been to Africa. So him exploring Africa and living in you know, Pakistan, going in and out of Dubai, those are really cool places. I'm definitely jealous of his travels.
2: Yes, yes, he's a world traveler.
1: Mm. So, uh, Brian, have you been uh, writing a lot, reading a lot on Quora recently?
2: Um, back uh, slightly on Quora. I think in the uh, beginning of the fall, you'll start seeing a much more uh, active environment. But I've been head over heels and projects. Uh, I love horror. It's uh, always going to be my primary home. I, uh, entertain on Twitter quite a bit, but I, I, you can't do real substance on Twitter, obviously. So, uh, it's, it's more entertaining than anything, but, um, yeah, I expect to do more, but I expect to have a lot more to talk about in the future from my research and study and programming this, uh, this summer,
1: Yeah, it's nice to see you on Twitter. I know that was a recent revelation.
2: Yeah, I'm on there. the Twitter. Yeah, I'm on the Twitter.
1: <laughs> on the Twitter. Yes. So we've got some topics lined up today. Um, first of which was Etsy's new app to pay local artisans. And uh, we've got a, a link in the show notes uh, from a, from a pay, what was it, uh, Next Web article. Yes. Brian, I knew you were particularly excited about this one.
2: Yeah, it's something that we predicted uh, in a show quite a long time ago. You know, the Etsy, first Etsy as a platform, a massive, massive platform uh, for artisans. I mean, it's always done well. I predicted Etsy would move into the retail space quite a long time ago. It was perpetuated by a number of different uh, things that uh, took place over the last two years. Frankly, indirectly, Square opening up Square Market, I think, really motivated Etsy to get into a reader for the um, iOS and Android device. It was sort of a reaction to Square moving into the artisan marketplace. But standing on its own, Etsy, by getting this particular app and getting into a local environment where one could open the app and see local artisans' wares and to find where they are selling, is phenomenal. And it's equivalent to, in some ways, the way that eBay is in relationship to Craigslist. But I don't think it does it great justice. The primary driving force, I think fundamentally with Etsy, is that one wants to have an interaction with a local artisan. They're seeking that sort of relationship out. And by Etsy opening up the ability for you to locate where these artisans are, sometimes randomly on display, either at swap meets, art festivals, Country fairs, back of their car, wherever it may be, is phenomenal. But also, it turns out a lot of these artisans have full time shops, and uh, they've been fortunate enough to take their Etsy, you know, enterprise and to make it into a local enterprise, uh, especially in some you know tourist regions. Um, I will be testing the Etsy app as soon as it becomes widely available uh, in the next couple of months. But I believe certain, you know. Areas where you see a coalescing of artisans, you're going to see an amazing amount of uh, uh, opportunity to sell. So why is it a game changer? It's a game changer because I think the typical Etsy buyer really wants to have an immersive experience with the items that they're buying. They want to actually look at it. They want to feel it and they want to see the craftsmanship and the dedication that was made in producing uh this particular item that there's
1: i wonder i wonder if if the goal is more like yelp where i can see on a map where the different stores are with the intent to go there or if it's more like uh you know um just an amazon where i can order online where you know do you see a lot of these artisans putting on their content on the app and then people can just order from wherever they are
2: i see both uh but i think the Subtext here is to try to drive more local sales, and that is to try to drive the one major element that's missing in e-commerce is the fact that human beings have not changed from an emotional standpoint for probably 300,000, maybe 600,000 years. We really want to interact with the buying experience, and there's something null and void even even the utilitarian and commodity purchases, there is a desire within the human psyche to be physically involved. Now, we, we placate that and we obviously do Amazon uh, justice. But I think when you go down the path of the artisan that's crafting something and you're paying perhaps a premium for that craftsmanship, you want to savor that more. And you want to interact and get to know that artisan. Uh, you want to know that artist, and I think that's the subculture within Etsy. In fact, I believe that's the primary culture within Etsy is that you're getting to know the artist, and it's one of the reasons why Square Market uh, Place has failed so tremendously is that it was ill-conceived and ill-thought-out, and it's a great deal of mal-advice for lack of focus for Square.
1: So it's the thing. I mean, a last question of that is between the two of them, what what didn't Square have? Did they didn't have the network of sellers to uh, launch no.
2: on? No, it, it, strangely enough, they had the network of sellers. They completely misunderstood the reason why people buy at Etsy. They completely misunderstood that Etsy's focus was on the artisan before the product. When you go to an Etsy site, you have this re- relationship that you can form with the artisan by reading their background, by seeing their picture. Uh, Square's site, I did a, 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 a treatise on this um, on Quora. Uh, within a week of Square Marketplace coming out, and I did the dichotomy of Etsy, uh, and uh, Etsy and Amazon versus Square Marketplace. Where does Square Marketplace fit in? And it didn't. It didn't. And what I discovered was something very clear, and it hasn't changed. When you go to a Square Marketplace merchant, it's devoid of anything but the product. A beautiful, beautiful, minimalistic design, completely devoid of the reasoning of why somebody purchases at Etsy. It is because of the uh, entire buying experience, and Etsy knew that, whether they knew it empirically uh, beforehand or that empirical result was from empirical paraxis of actually building that site. Oh, my
1: favorite word, empirical yeah. paraxis. Yeah, so
2: <laughs> the bottom line is they have it, and and the site is growing rapidly and massively, and I think this is, this is one of the best things that they've done. In fact, on Twitter, I said it, it is a turning point in, in mobile payments. I think uh, five years from now, we'll really go back and look at this. Hmm. It will open up doors for a lot of local merchants. So Etsy's,
1: Etsy's floating at uh, about fifteen dollars a share, which yes. is considerably down from their twenty-eight dollar start. Uh, oh a year ago, I a lot of stocks
2: being hurt out there. Yeah, because... I wonder.
1: I wonder if this could turn them around. You know, yes. the next the next thing we have here is uh, the Pay Anywhere exclusive for Apple. Wow. Uh, you had we talked about this a little pre show. It's it's interesting kind of philosophically how this came to be. Um they're offering the the free five thousand dollar Apple Pay transactions. Um this is not just for stores in San Francisco, I believe. This is
2: for... No, this is for the entire United States. It's quite a big uh, quite a big thing. You know, a uh, good old friend Mark uh, who runs North American uh, bank card who uh, produced Pay Anywhere Incredible guy. Uh, his backstory. I mean, he he built a company in Detroit, Michigan. Wow. Let's let's just think about that. I mean, it, this took a lot of gumption. It took a lot of why. No. Why tenacity. would he do
1: that? Did, what did he have in Detroit, Michigan that was advantageous? Were there were there engineers, or did he have a connection Nothing. to a bank, or what?
2: Nothing but adversity. And this is why <laughs> I love certain entrepreneurs they didn't go to the usual suspects they didn't say oh i must move to the mission district and open this up they looked at the world through the eyes of how merchant processing really takes place and they realized that technology is an extremely important part but so is understanding the merchant and i think and i don't want to speak for mark uh you know he's a great guy uh, but the bottom line is i think what he looked at was the challenges and he said you know something if i can make it if I can make it here in Detroit, if I can build this company, uh, which all, all merchant processing companies from Square to Stripe, they are sales companies primarily and fundamentally, period, end of story. Next, next, we add, we add that they're technology companies. But if the sales element is not fully understood and grown unilaterally and, and simultaneously at the same time, um, you reach a glass ceiling of growth, period. Uh, and I think a lot of people who have done this for a long time realize that they look at it and they say, "Oh my gosh, why did we? Why didn't we build sales at the same time as engineering? Why did we build a culture where uh, you know engineering is more uh, prized than sales?" And I love both. I'm an engineer by by trade and by talent. Uh, this is my tr- primary focus, but I, I I send a great deal of respect for what I think is the most honorable profession, and that's selling. And that, that's true selling. That's not selling somebody something that they don't want. That's selling something that somebody does want and helping them make that decision.
1: So is that is that what makes this company special, is there, their sales team? Or I'm just trying to... Yes. That's what it is. Huh? So what does the sales team sort of look like? Is it feet on the ground, guys going door-to-door, selling pay-anywhere device?
2: Some of it. Uh, I think what Mark uh, Gardner has built is not the largest, but probably one of, one of the top three most efficient sales organizations huh. in the United States. Really? I think. So, it,
1: how many people? Do, I'm curious to see
2: how many how many salespeople they have. Yeah, you know. uh, over fifty thousand.
1: Really? Just for, they, for fifty thousand people work for pay anywhere?
2: Not pay anywhere. Uh, North American and North pay American. anywhere is just one product that they can sell. It will take a great deal of time, and one would argue that. We're in the age of dismediation, Brian. Everything sells itself. We just need a web link and that's it. Well, I could tell you, I could tell you with absolute clarity, that is absolutely false. Every single company that sells to a business, and I'm not just even talking payments. I'm talking if you're selling to a business, you must, must build a sales team. And if you don't build it day one, you're always backtracking. And that's why, that's why, by the way, Apple gave an exclusive to Pay Anywhere. You know, I got to tell you, uh, three or four months before Apple Pay was announced, I was diligently working with companies trying everything I could. San Francisco-based startups, legacy companies, banks. You better get in front of this. You better get and build.
1: So what was it that they did that Apple Pay or Apple decided to be exclusive with them for?
2: They were first to market. Really? Uh, just having? And, but, but they have a very compelling story. Apple really, you know, Apple really appreciates building huge sales groups. And Jennifer, the head of Apple Pay, comes from Apple Retailer, uh, from the Apple retail side of business. Uh, If you don't really respect building building of sales talent after running Apple stores, nobody will understand it. And it's the biggest deficit in the Silicon Valley. Everybody loves and praises Apple, right? And then somehow they think that they have a Google model of selling. Apple opened up the Apple Store because Steve Jobs was probably the patron saint of salespeople. And that's what people don't understand, is he realized that individuals must physically touch and interact with their technology, the products. Hmm. Like it is said about Etsy, the artisan, the work of the artisan, it must be interact with. And it was counterintuitive when the Apple Store opened up. So when Jennifer got transferred over to running Apple Pay, I think it was very... Uh, very instinctual for her to reach out and they look i know for a fact she looked out at all the other companies building apple pay readers so why wouldn't why wouldn't
1: apple build this do you think
2: apple has no desire to go down uh, a path at this point that the the path of uh square and uh, right right right. and and pay pay anywhere they may go down the they may go down a path of PayPal, Braintree, and Stripe, though. Uh, So these are different things, uh, and they mean different uh, sort of um, uh, engineering challenges to Apple.
1: Speaking of engineering challenges, uh, on September 9th, Apple's going to release some of their recent engineering accomplishments. I'm sure we're going to see upgrades, spec upgrades, like we usually do. What other interesting announcements do you think they'll have planned?
2: Wow. Well, I could say this early on. Uh, there's no doubt we're going to have a new iPhone series. Uh, it's going to have um, a... iPhone 7? No, 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 no. Uh, it's, it's it's an S. It probably will take the S designation. iPhone 7 is going to be complete redesign. I'm much more excited over that change. I think iPhone 6S will be enough for some people to switch. Uh, pro- perhaps not everybody we're going to have dy- dynamic lock screen uh, notifications and uh, images very much equivalent to what we see on watch. We're going to have a much more dynamic camera uh, experience for the uh, forward-facing and rear-facing camera. I think we're going to see incredible battery life, uh, almost a 35% improvement. What, battery. About,
1: what about will the Apple Watch be able to stand alone or is it always going to be with the phone? No,
2: not Still yet. Still with the phone? Yeah, and, and I think... Is that the, battery
1: life, I'd imagine?
2: Not really. It, it's it's a couple of things that are driving this. I think Apple Watch 2, but most definitely Apple Watch 3, which is definitely being tested as we speak, uh, are going to be the real game changers. And it's very equivalent to the first iPod. I think today we are in the iPod 1 world, way before iPhone when it comes to Apple Watch. And I think when Apple Watch comes on comes on the scene... It's going to be very equivalent to what the iPhone looked like, iPhone 1 looked like when it first came out in comparison to the iPod. And people are using the wrong analogy. They're saying Apple Watch 1 is like iPhone 1. No, the changes are going to be even much more transformative and dynamic. We're going to see the beginnings of Apple Pay 2.0, which, by the way, is one of the reasons, another reason why Apple partnered with Pay Anywhere uh, is because... Unfortunately uh, some San Francisco Bay startups and uh, some other startups really aren't getting the direction of where Apple Pay is going and I think uh, strangely enough a Detroit Michigan startup really it just uh, blows high-
1: my mind that Square wasn't able to make that you know whatever hardware uh, pay anywhere built Square couldn't have built that and partnered like, with. I mean, that blow. Like, it mind. has
2: absolutely nothing to do with engineering. It's what I've been saying for it's years. It's about the
1: sales and distribution.
2: No, it's even more than that. It's about empirical praxis, it's about understanding every element of the market, the psychology of the partnerships. Square has been adverse uh, has an aversion of partnerships unfortunately and I think that was maladvised.
1: So that's the that's was essentially killing the deal for him.
2: No, is I wouldn't say that. Well, you know, there's other things There's marketing we we didn't mention the $5,000 free of uh, Apple Pay transactions that's going to come with Pay anywhere. Yeah, but it's a can no do brainer. That. I mean
1: that's, that's Anybody
2: can do it but you know it's the way it's executed. But let's let's drift into Apple Pay 2.0 a little bit. I mean some of the reasons why I think Apple is really reaching out for these unique partnerships is they want companies that will be able to coordinate a fast and very cohesive movement into the marketplace when Apple pay 2.0 and 3.0 starts, you know, being uh, distributed Apple pay 2.0, but mostly Apple pay 3.0 is going to require feet on the street interaction for selling. It's going to require uh, a consultive selling approach. You cannot do it from a telemarketing center in Utah.
1: Did Apple you, Pay One require that?
2: No, not really. But to, to, to be frank, to build Apple Pay effectively with legacy merchants, you need a company that actually has a uh, consult selling. You need somebody that gets on the phone and say, hi, Bob, remember me? I'm the guy you talked to, the guy you set up. Oh, by the way, here's yeah. why you need to have Apple Pay. Just having it and having a really cool graphic on your site Apple knows that that is not going to do justice to three and I think they're reaching out to um, sales organizations that understand the marketplace, and and are already in there now. Certainly, Square finally woke up and they hired salespeople. They didn't have a single salesperson for unfortunately way too many years, and they do now are you know what well, they do now have a sales group, but it's not uh, a feed on the street sales group, and it's not. Uh, a ninja stealth organization that is necessary to compete in this marketplace and so this is they're interrelated i think as we move forward into new changes with apple pay i think we're going to see why it's important to have human beings out there especially when it comes to pos systems every po and you know this personally mike every company is not going to go out and stick a tablet no i'm just wondering
1: why what makes this different you know if they're Essentially saying you need feed-in-the-street feed salespeople, uh, why wouldn't they have used that the first time around?
2: Because Apple Pay 1.0 was the extension of uh, near-field communications NFC technology, and that. There was some self-apparent nature to that. A merchant could sort of understand, okay, you swap out this machine or you add this, uh, you know, uh, pin pad 805 uh, or something, and now you have NFC payments or you can get a square dongle or, uh, you know, um, Bluetooth device, etc. Apple Pay 3 is going to be talking a lot more about Bluetooth low energy and micro locations. There's going to be a lot more internal engineering inside that store. We're going to have hypo hyper location to individual products so Apple is going to bring you into individualized products within this environment you're not going to do that from a call center and if you're running a company that you think is going to sound much more sexy to investors because there's no meat involved, there's there's no you know, um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, ugly sales uh, tactics involved, sure you know, that sounds great, but you know, the honorable sales uh, groups Let's look at Salesforce. Let's look at um, Hewlett-Packard in its era. Let's look at Xerox, mm, these, yeah. IBM. These yeah, companies built I mean, very I, large I, I sales organizations.
1: I generally agree. I think you know, they're going to use existing channels to, to distribute it out there. Um, Absolutely. And Apple
2: surprising. doesn't want to do it personally. You, Apple doesn't want to go knocking on No, no,
1: no. Um, which I think Square carried the same mentality, but someone's eventually got to do it. Do that's you think right. Samsung is going to go the same direction? One one topic we have here is the Samsung Pay and its ability to rival Apple Pay. They recently acquired Loop Pay. Um, yes, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, Loop Pay plus Samsung. Does it stand a chance against Apple Pay?
2: You know, it's not an either or. You know, if you look at anything in nature and and certainly in business, there's always a dichotomy. There's always an A and B. There's, uh, you know, an, an, there's an unbalanced dichotomy sometimes, Visa versus MasterCard, Uber versus Lyft, et cetera. But there's always going to be a dichotomy. And I'm not saying that uh, uh, it's going to be that way with Samsung Pay versus Apple Pay. I think Apple Pay is always going to lead to a certain extent. I think if Apple continues to innovate, and uh, my belief is from you know personal knowledge and empirical results out in the field, I see what they're testing. I think they're going to lead incredibly because, you know, there's a big mindset change on the direction. Samsung Pay is going to do extraordinarily well, and that's the, um, uh, the inductive loop Samsung Pay, the one that uses the old MagStrip technology. is going to be doing well, and we talked about this, around the world, in uh, areas uh, of the developing world where NFC is not moving as quickly. It's going to be doing well in some parts of the United States, but the problem is, is merchant training. Does a merchant feel confident when somebody holds a device up to their old credit card machine for the first time and wonder, did they really get paid or did they they get hacked in some way? Uh, Samsung must educate the merchant, and that is a a tremendously large undertaking. I don't see any supporting material that they're doing that. Samsung Pay is an NFC system, equivalent to also Android Pay. I think they're going to do phenomenally well. I think uh, you're going to see more and more demand for NFC devices uh, grow organically. All of it, all the growth in the last year has been organic growth. These are merchants demanding to have these NFC systems. Yeah,
1: I wonder if it's just a conscious effort by Apple to say we're going to segment part of the market and just take that and sort of give the rest to, you know, Samsung. Um, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that there'll be room for many more players. It's similar in, in a way. In my mind, too, how Verizon, AT&T plays out and you have kind of oh, yeah. T-Mobile and what was Nokia and, you know, some others. But it really seems like there's a one and two player offering either like, you know, it basically comes down to the hierarchy of needs. Is yes. You want the cheap and fast, you want the high quality and,
2: you know, Maslow. bigger
1: or, you know, there's really not too many potential options. So someone's going to choose the cheap and fast, someone's going to choose the, you know, the high quality and fancy and that there's not too much else. There's not too much. Yeah, too, too much other room.
2: Exactly, and I think the next real divergence is going to be uh, as we move towards Apple Pay 3.0. I think that vision is going to be extremely difficult to replicate because of a very tight patent uh, loop that Apple has formed around the Apple Pay 3.0 vision. I mean, only one percent of it's been exposed. I've only talked about one very very small element of it. And I think we'll start seeing the beginnings of that in September ninth to sort mm-hmm. of wrap up what we're going to see. Ne- well, not next week. Uh, we'll we'll have one show before the announcement, mm-hmm. but
1: this should come up pretty pretty soon, right before. Yeah, yeah. Um, w- one one topic that we have here, which is interesting, is the effect of social in fintech. Um, the article here that we stumbled across and we'll include in the show notes is a TechCrunch article written by. Shane Leonard, and basically the concept is that it's it's pessimistic around social, um, particularly in fintech, and it names a bunch of startups that have failed, uh, Ka-ching, Cake Financial, Robinhood, you know, names some others, and it basically says that they're pretty down on social in payments. There are some examples of social being used in payments, like, you know, Venmo has a social aspect yeah. to it, and there's Kickstarter and Kiva, which... They arguably are payments companies, um, but really, in my mind, they're social engineering projects, right? They're not necessarily built to move money. Um, I'm more interested in in seeing social use to either reduce the the payment risk or the insurance rates for consumers or something sort of quantitative. No one that I've seen kind of really hits that on the head. Um, One company that comes to mind, we had them on the show uh, at True Accord,
2: Ohad. Ohad, Ohad is Ohad.
1: brilliant. Yeah, you know I th- mean, that's that's probably the, the piece here. I think on the the yeah. optimistic side that they may be missing, but you
2: woody know, woody. It, yeah, I I agree and and. Uh, I, it's funny because right when you were thinking about uh, a true accord, I was uh, I was thinking of that, uh, and uh, also um, that company that um, is uh, doing incredible cash advance. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, up, Olanda, uh, yeah, the same same stuff. Uh, same stuff. What, what Ohad's put together there is an incredible model of understanding how the modern consumer, even our moms, uh, because they interact with Facebook certainly, uh, whether we like it or not. And, you know there's a soon on snapchat right and other uh, platforms so what what basically is is changing is you see that there are new systems where we can understand consumer behavior so what ohad is doing i and i think i probably interrupted him a dozen times cuz i see a dozen different ways he can go with the infrastructure he's building. Uh, he's doing grand work and in, in, uh, payment collection, but uh, I think it's expandable. I would argue an antithesis to what uh, is being written here to some extent because I think if we start with Prosper and we go into Lending Club, Kickstart, Kickstarter, and certainly Kiva, there is social proof and there's social interactions that are being built around these companies and uh, most assuredly uh, in, in Kiva and Kickstarter. I think Kickstarter is going to absolutely change a generation in the way they view their relationship with companies, their loyalty to companies, and products. Um, I think the original premise has shifted uh, from its inception. I think a lot of times people troll Kickstarter for, wow, what new tech can I get? But I also think that you're seeing this second and third go-around of the uh, serial entrepreneur, serial engineer, serial inventor coming uh, forth. I I purchased um, about half a dozen products from one individual. Each one's uniquely different. Mm -hmm. And I like his Mm -hmm. brand. So in a sense, what we've done is we've built a social brand around the creative genius, the engineer. And historically, there's never been a precedence for... uh, for the mass to invest in such a manner. Uh, We look at Edison and we look at Ford and we look at the other lone wolf inventors, maybe Tesla, if he was around and we had a Kickstarter platform. What would the world look like if we could invest in the wild and crazy, brilliant genius? The one that everybody that says, oh, come on, I'm not going to put conventional money in there. I think what social does, and it's already doing, is it allows us to take a social proof of the square peg, uh, the disruptor, the true disruptor, not the, you know, somebody wrote a TechCrunch story disruption uh, piece, but the true disruptor who comes off the the wall with a new theory and gets support. Now, how does that gestate into fintech? Well, I think ultimately it's going to gestate into uh, all sorts of underwriting into companies. The wild and crazy startup founder who can't get any VC money because he's, he doesn't have the pedigree right you know about pedigree on uh on a lot of startup founders if you don't talk the right talk or walk the right walk you're you're locked out of uh, certainly classic silicon valley startup i have a lot of friends on sandhill road and i don't mean anything uh displeasing towards them because I, i love these guys and gals but there is a hierarchy that you must achieve and i've brought some great opportunities that they've taken uh hold of and I've taken some great opportunities there that they looked at and say Brian what in the hell are you talking about
1: Yeah, and there's you know, nowhere, I, I, nowhere I, yeah. to bring these people I mostly agree I think the the interesting point uh, that I sort of dug into in the article was social hasn't actually improved or raised the tides on any major segment of the market like if you look at the public financial markets we're not really using social social in any way that gives us insight that I know of you know there's not really if, if you look at sort of what people are tweeting about or what Facebook has or, you know, sort of is there a way to crunch that and turn it into better market predictions as to stock prices or, you know, it's a far-fetched idea now. But I think the basic premise is that's really, really difficult and companies have tried and failed. Um, you know, one company I, I really like is, uh, is uh, what is it, Karma? Um, oh, Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, clout. Uh, clout is oh, an clout, interesting. Yeah, yeah, clout. Interesting. Uh, clout never. I really liked the idea when it first came out. and King's They never morphine, really, right? I don't know. I mean, clout <laughs> never seemed to really make any major moves, and they seem to have all the potential to do so. And I look at that and say, is there opportunities to do so in the financial market as well? Uh, kind of with a similar sort of social ranking idea, and I think there is. Just no one's really hit it yet. And I mean, if you take Slack for an example of of team ch- communication, sure. You know, I was with one of my one of my good friends last night. He works for UCLA, and he basically when I showed him Slack, he basically, you know, he's an early adopter to it. and He tried to convince other people on the team, and he got a few people to use it. And then now the whole department's using it, and all of yeah. UCLA, and uh, it, it's totally changed their workflow. And I think no one's really cracked the egg uh, to get past the friction of like social acceptance. It's not really the ability to build the platform. It's how do you get the guys that are just kind of on the fence to actually really love it and embrace it. And I think this is probably where this market is as well, social in fintech, is no the opportunity is there. There's clearly a lot of money and attention and time being spent here, but no one's really cracked it to get in and, and have a big success. And I don't think it's a market barrier or competitive nature, but just no one's built the right product to get in there.
2: I got to um, agree. And I also think it's definitional, right? I think if you look at it, what, what are we talking about in social? How do we define that? And there's so many elements of it. I mean, social proof on what side of the equation and uh, social ranking on what side of the equation. And, you know, I think it's a matter of cracking uh, the right Rubik here. I, I, I think if you look at cloud, it was a brilliant idea in its inception, but it's, it's, it's really morphed a lot. I mean, do you use cloud a lot today? How do you I, see
1: it? I, it? Lays on top of Twitter and it says a number, but I don't really use it.
2: Yeah, because it, again, it, it's sort of an abstract concept for a lot of people. And I think if anybody's going to do it, it's probably going to be Facebook on a social graph. Mm. It's probably going to be LinkedIn at a certain level on a certain uh, uh, segment, and perhaps Quora. I mean, Quora has the ability to really create a mastermind if if they really had the wherewithal to do it.
1: Yeah, it's, that'd be an exciting one to see. Yeah. Um, you know, one one topic here we have that we, uh, we've touched on a little bit, and maybe we could dive into it, maybe not, is uh, PayPal unlocks the global marketplace in Kenya. We talked a little bit about, about this before the show. Uh, Faisal being in Africa kind of spurred this conversation. Topical, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting to say that PayPal, you know, 60% of Kenya's 26 million people, um, are using the internet to purchase things. And PayPal essentially goes into these markets using the clout and technology they have uh, to provide the infrastructure for online shopping and transactions. Um, It kind of surprised me initially that this wasn't available sooner. Like whatever banking system Kenya has that PayPal hadn't sort of integrated with it, but I guess it's probably a reflection of the size of the world and the number of complex payment systems that exist that they're just now doing this. Um, but it seemed really it seemed interesting philosophically to sort of open up another 26 million u- purchasers right i think the us sort of has a a lopsided control of the world <laughs> yes. or maybe just internet usage because it's not just people per capita of the world right 300 million people or whatever we have it's it's really the people using the internet so you know us is going to be much higher per capita people that have access to purchase things online and so we carry a lot more power relative to companies, countries like Kenya. Uh, but I think once you start to liberate those guys, the the citizens of the country, and give them the ability to purchase things from each other, all of a sudden these countries start to really rise in the tide, and it changes in a great way the global economy. So it's exciting to see that.
2: So what do you what do you think was the barrier? I mean, certainly. PayPal and eBay have been around for a long time. What's been a barrier to open up the world? I mean, yeah. it, it really isn't technology. I mean, there's have been computers and smartphones in all parts of the world for at least uh, half a dozen years.
1: This is a great, great question. I think the Mall for America, this MFA, in the article here, is really the organization that uh, that builds this, the online experience. So maybe it's infrastructure on a low level, people actually having devices. Um, to to go online and maybe there wasn't enough there that made the the country appealing enough for PayPal to go into. Maybe it's political, you know. Somehow there's there's tax or some uh, payment systems that PayPal has to pay, or maybe it's uh, monitoring the usage of these people. And maybe it's technical or architectural, you know, having the infrastructure in place with the banks. Can you? To me, I don't know enough about it, but it doesn't seem too stable of a region historically um in banking so probably all those together but yeah i don't know it is interesting
2: yes absolutely so it looks like well we had a little conversation about how uh, a lot of the wall street banks over the last few years have gotten involved in startup capital especially late stage but now in some very early stage environments You've been around the block on raising capital. How do you feel about this? How does it change the character of the startup world?
1: Yeah, so I, I think generally the idea is that raising raising large amounts of money happens later. So instead of companies IPOing sooner, you know Uber, for example, will raise a much 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 larger private round instead of going public, and maybe. Companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan are the ones who contribute the investment. Yeah, uh, it says here Spotify took more than 500 million in June in a transaction from Goldman Sachs, and that's going to be private. So I think that's tending to be more common than it was previously. Whereas most companies would have in raising that kind of round just gone public. Um, I'm not sure it changes too much on the you know pre-Series C uh, round companies, but. It is interesting, I mean, from a VC's perspective, I would think that it's less opportunistic to have large privately uh, private equity rounds, just because then, you know, you're essentially postponing your liquidation uh, stage, you know, when the VC can essentially cash in uh, the stock options. So, I don't know, I don't know how much it affects things, but I would generally think it's slightly negative for VC Funds, maybe they have to push back their expectations. You know, if you if you have to wait another six months or a year uh, to to get liquidation from an investment, that's probably going to have to go into their model somehow.
2: You know, Mike. A lot of VCs I know, uh, you know, whether it's true or not, they kind of call a lot of the Wall Street um, investors are coming in as dumb money, not smart money. And uh, they point to that as a downfall of the IPO marketplace and the downfall of the uh, uh, perhaps the entire uh, VC marketplace with startups in, uh, the, in the coming months and years. Do you feel any of that? Because I, I don't know if that's just a, a self-reference. Uh, no,
1: I think dumb money is a reference, The sort of the intelligence of the money is in <laughs> reference to what you're trying to accomplish right there. So if your goal is to get a partnership or have sort of strategic rollout, you know, I remember at Zing, it was really interesting to us to figure out how do we partner with um, distributors and how do we work with local ISOs and sales teams. And, and that was a really interesting, complex challenge. And finding people that have experience in that as an investor was really, really important to us. But then as you sort of overcome those milestones, you know, for Home Hero, for example, there's things that we wanted to solve in the early days that, you know, science was, and Mike Jones is a great investor for us. Um, And then there's things that we want to solve later, like, you know, growing city by city all across the U.S. or growing internationally or even getting to the point where we want to plan our IPO. And having investors at that stage that help you with the next stage is where smart or dumb money kicks in. So when you're raising $500 million, having Goldman Sachs on the the board is probably a a smart money thing. You know, he's not going to help you with... For Spotify, he's not going to help you, you know, get any deals with labels or you know, negotiate pricing with your customers. But he's going to help you think about how to IPO and how to raise larger amounts of money, which is arguably the most important thing. So,
2: so everybody does a different thing, right? They perform yeah, exactly. different functions. So, I get a lot of people I mean, I would say probably a dozen people uh, a week or so asking me about the 1099 versus a W 2 discussion, and, and everybody's saying. Does Mike have any insights on this? Because you are at the forefront of this. Uh, not that your company in particular, but you are blazing the trail with uh, with Home Hero. Do you have any reflections upon what the last couple of weeks have been like? Have there been any changes, anything interesting?
1: I mean, a couple of the factors that have happened was it was interesting to see Zirtual, uh, Zirtual shut down and, and Home Joy shut down. I think generally the the Department of Labor just passed... Um, in our, in our industry, you sort of, I think the important, important part to know is understand the pendulum swings, right? Understand which direction things are going on a state by state and then federal level. So California, you know, is, is definitely a unique state, not a great state to have, um, independent contractors versus W2. They're very employee focused, and other states are not. So I think each state presents its each challenges, and each one has different pendulums that they swing with. Um, we listen to or sort of try to observe each of those. So you look at Uber, and Uber, for, for what it's worth, they've done a fantastic thing for the world from my perspective in paving the way for politicians to understand how this benefits the world. Um, I think if they hadn't been as successful as quick, it, it would have been a really long road. Uh, to try to convince people that this is a better model or that there maybe is even a third model. Uh, there's an interesting article I read recently that basically makes the claim, and I believe it, that 1099W2 are not the only two models that should exist. I mean, uh-huh. there should be a I third uh, service-based model where it's not really the independent person. they're They're being directed. They're being trained, but they are not employees. They're not expected to show up you know completely uh under the control of the employer, they don't really have bosses there's many like there's many things that go into this that uh, really pave the argument for a third employment relationship outside of ten ninety nine w two which I fully agree with
2: so do you feel that there's a likelihood that the forthcoming political uh theater that will take place over the next year or so? do you think there's a likelihood that there's equity behind the change of these designations? Because I really think this ultimately lies in the hands of politics because technology has already solved the problem yeah. uh, you know the, the world's already answered right by virtue of your incredibly talented groups of, uh, of of practitioners and obviously Uber drivers and all sorts of uh, independent uh, people have become enriched by this yeah. I mean, do you think it's a political thing that is going to be solvable I think
1: I think it's definitely a political thing I can't I, I think it can't not be a political thing. Politics is generally very touchy, um, and different people have very strong viewpoints one way or the other. The one stance I like to communicate is that people can easily be persuaded to believe certain things based on how the topic is presented. So something like, um, a minimum wage, you know, a minimum wage, some people feel, feel very passionately and closed minded that there's, there must be a minimum wage, that it must be raised continuously, um. And in sort of there's another viewpoint on it that the higher a minimum wage goes, you know, there's a certain bounds. If it's if it's zero, what happens? And if it's twenty nine, thirty five dollars an hour, what happens? And essentially, when it gets pushed too high, you have you have partnerships or transactions between buyers and sellers that can't happen because of sort of arbitrary. Uh, regulations basically saying you can't buy this from this person because the government said it has to cost this much. Therefore, neither person gets the exchange value. And I think that's when the economy loses. And I think generally if we didn't have minimum wage from the start, it would be a better economy. But being that we do, it's it next to impossible to remove it. Um, I, I sort of think being a capitalistic mindset that – supply and demand are going to equal out and there's always going to be better opportunity for people um, if they're in a, a lower wage work so I think generally I'm very aware of the government's ability to create a perspective that raises tax income for them so by raising minimum wage essentially a lot of that uh, those that dollar those dollars will go into uh, the government's pockets you know w2 in itself with the whole workers compensation, a lot of the employee tax withholding, a lot of that money goes straight to the government so there's major incentive for the state to um, to lean towards the employee heavy tax route, which sure. essentially takes money out of the out of the buyers and sellers. Um, and I think that's the message that doesn't really get clearly portrayed.
2: Interesting. You know, there were a lot of books written in the early, um, well, even in the early 80s, but the early 90s about the you economy or the economy of you and the idea that ultimately because of a world market and because of technology that you will be the product and you will be, you know, ultimately responsible. There's no, you know, golden watch 35 years at one company. And I think what we're seeing here is precipice of change where, Everybody. not We're seeing it the low-level worker, uh, you know, it, certainly a long time. We're seeing it at what I would consider mid and high-level. <clears throat> but the very high-level worker, I think the same sort of premise will take place. I think we're already kind of seeing it, you know, and certainly in a lot of ways my life operates that way, is that you kind of just form these uh, relationships on demand. Based upon your insights, your talents, uh, and what you bring to a project, and sometimes those projects can last very long, or sometimes they last, uh, you know, until they need to be finished, and that can be just a couple of weeks. But I think this is the beginning of that, mm-hmm. and if we don't really solve this problem here, it's just going to become a much worse problem in the future. Yeah, you know, and it, it, I think it, this is going to get more complex.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I actually took a trip up to Sacramento. Um, At the Capitol building to meet a lot of district attorneys and the sort of message I got or, you know, that was my first experience really um, going through that not lobbying process, but meeting people uh, in the Capitol building process. And there was a very strong anecdotal presence of stories that these guys hear on the day-to-day basis, of some family complaining that some massive injustice happened to them. And the stories are really sad, and you hear them, and you're really compelled to do something. And these wow. politicians, they do. I mean, they're really incentivized to create a great story that then helps them stay in office. Um, and I, I think a lot of times the, the victim of a situation will be the one in one million. And oftentimes, legislative bills get passed that, that shouldn't because there's uh, anecdotal um, incentive. You know, there's one story from one person. Thus, we should change the whole system. I mean, when I was living in Singapore, it blew my mind to learn that gum is outlawed because one lady on one train uh, <laughs> oh was go- getting on the on the train, and you know the little sensors that that stop the door from opening and closing. Some kid put yeah. a piece of gum on the sensor, so the sensor didn't know. When someone was there or not, so the door it said it was closed. It was really open. The girl gets on the bus or the train, and the train starts moving, breaks her arm. You know, so what does the comp- the country do? They outlaw gum. And I think that's just an a example of like, what the hell are we doing? You know, and I, I think you kind of have to look beyond the the trees um, to really you know create a create a great, good solution for it.
2: absolutely. and i think I think it's an interesting time. I think 100 years from now, when we look back, we're going to wonder why was this such a, a big a challenge? Why did we see the world through the eyes of 1099 and W-2? I actually think that ultimately there can be many designations, and I think it's a, it should be really based upon uh, how that individual is going to live their life. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, interesting. And it's good to see you're in the front of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's going to be challenging, but I think uh, you're looking at a, uh, a sea change ahead. Yeah,
1: definitely. you got to stay optimistic. I mean, the, the world is the way it is, and you just have to play in it as best you can. So, uh, yeah, I'm open to it. I'm always learning more and more. So if anyone has any thoughts, questions, feel free to reach out, as always. Uh, I love talking about all of this. Brian, it was great Beautiful. talking about uh, all of these great topics today, and look forward to the next one.
2: Absolutely wonderful show today, Mike.
1: All right, good sir.
2: Take care. Bye